You're listening to a Radio 191 FM podcast. It's history time. Come on, tell your friends. We'll visit New Zealand's ancient lands with Jamie the host and Dr. Valetta Gillibit the historian. Our fun will never end because it's history time. Good morning. Good morning, Jamie. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Right. It's part two of a two-part series into marriage in Aotearoa. Last time we looked at pre-settlement and early settlement marriage between both uh, interracial marriages between Māori and Pākehā, intertribal marriages between Māori uh, and other facets of early colonial marriage. Um, Now we're kind of getting, we're past the Treaty of Waitangi, kind of looking around the 60s, the 1860s and 70s, especially around Otago, when you get this influx of, of men from all around the world. You know, you've, you've just had the Victorian gold rush, mm-hmm. so you're getting a lot of men coming over from Victoria, and they've come from all over the world because they've come from California before that. Um, so you've got Chinese men, you've got uh, Indian, Irish, mm-hmm. uh, a, a lot of men from around the world, and it's just mainly men. Oh, yes. I mean, uh, folks didn't really have the capacity and I don't think wives had the interest in being towed around um, while their husbands were off making their fortunes. So, yeah, usually remained home with the kids wherever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, China, India, also uh, Lebanon, which then was known as Dalmatia. Yeah. Um, those were the three big groups, but there was a very, a, a, yeah, huge mix and certainly Irish men as well, as you say. Yeah. Yeah. You can see those streams um, in modern Dunedin today. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a big Lebanese population, but of course a lot of uh, Lebanese people came out post-World War II as well, or during World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a big, you know, old Chinese community as well. Certainly, yeah. Folks would probably be quite familiar with the name Su Hoi. Yeah. Um, he was a, a quite a visible, um, you know, Chinese ambassador and very successful businessman and entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. Impressive. I still go to Su Hoi's to get some things from time to time. Ah. Yeah. And also the Chin family is another big old Chinese family. Certainly, in, in yeah. And Otiputi. Um, so, I mean, so what did that bring to New Zealand marriage? You know, we've talked about intertribal, we've talked about interracial um, now you've got like different religions mm-hmm. uh, and you've got a whole bunch of other races absolutely yes um, so of course brought a lot of uh, colour and a, a lot of diversity both to historic and to contemporary New Zealand if we're thinking about a popular reaction or an establishment reaction um, from a settler perspective it would be an anxious one overwhelmingly mm-hmm. yeah um, there were concerns for social stability and, of course, that reached wider than um, sudden uh, influx of ethnically diverse people. Um, it was the gender balance that we've mentioned um, in previous uh, episodes of the series that Wakefield was trying to maintain our early settlers. They wanted um, a very ordered and um, prosperous and peaceable Christian society, mainly. Yeah. And uh, this, this threw a lot of that um, out of out of balance. Um, certainly fears were for what kind of relationships and marriages might eventuate from these folks settling here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you, you'd already at that stage had a big um, sway in terms of m- more men than women and then you get a bigger influx of uh, men coming in. So there are probably a lot of Pakeha men that were worried they'd never find a partner. <laughs> well, yes, it was a, a real bachelor society back in the day and yeah. 
applied uh, definitely more widely than than uh, people of colour. A lot of Pakia um, settlers were also single and mm-hmm. remained single um, up until their thirties, for um, well into the eighteen eighties and nineties. In, in the late 1800s, there was still a lot of interracial marriage between Pakeha and Māori. Mm-hmm. So did we see a lot of Māori shack up, I guess, with the gold miners from China and India and whatnot? Well, there were cases, definitely, um, and they were remarked upon. I mean, there were there was a kind of, you know, colonial racial hierarchy going on. Mm-hmm. Folks were fitted in and judged accordingly. Um, so, the, yeah, there were a lot of assumptions about the nature of these relationships, that they were exploitative, that um, they were in some way... Um, Unchristian or abnormal. Um, we can see that thinking applied to a lot uh, more diverse relationship categories than the interracial or the interfaith yeah. as well. Um, so certainly um, it wasn't welcome, but these relationships uh, did take place and were often quite happy settled ones. If we look a bit further into the 1920s, um, there was a case of Māori female employees working for Chinese market gardeners. Yeah who by this stage had transitioned out of uh, the gold uh, industry, which was kind of, you know, long gone by that stage, into laundry work and market gardening mainly. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of uh, suspicion about the nature of these employee and um, employer relationships, which um, were suspected to be intimate as well in some cases. And so an investigation was eventually conducted and Māori women were interviewed. And... Uh, the upshot of it was that um, they were very happy as employees. They considered Indian and Chinese men um, very fair employers. And the women who were married to these Chinese men, mm-hmm. um, three legal marriages, quote-unquote, and a number of uh, de facto relationships were taking place as well, all had positive things to say, as did their whanau. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was definitely a discrepancy between how the public perceived these relationships, how they might be and how they were. And... Um, how they played out. Yeah, well, there was a lot going on in the early uh, 20th century in terms of um, Pakeha and Chinese. I mean, that was the time of the mm. Yellow Peril, and we'll get to that in another oh. part of the series eventually. Oh, yes. But there was some pretty uh, intense racism towards the Chinese community. Very intense. Um, some things that I find really interesting about early colonial life in Aotearoa when it comes to marriage, but age of consent. Mm. Um, from 1840 through to 1833, uh, I guess that's when the first marriage act came in, 1840, you have, were still using British common law. Um, so the age for consent for a female was 12, and for a boy was 14. Um, and that didn't change, yes, until 1933. Uh, Correct. When it was raised to 16... Uh, and if you were under 21, you needed parental or caregiver consent. Yes, and uh, the same applied to marriage for under 21s as well. Yeah, um, rather young, and uh, the Women's Christian Temperance Union and a lot of early feminists who we'd consider first-wave feminists, I suppose, were the main advocates for trying to raise the age of consent because Mm. um, much like many listeners today, they found that it was rather low in the case of boys and especially in the case of girls. Yes, yes. Yes, so I mean, being able to legally marry a girl at 12 it just seemed, I mean, it's a horror to us now, but this is only 100 and, well, it was up until 1933, so it's not even 100 years ago. Absolutely. Um, it would be, you know, um, I'm sure the statistics are out there for precisely how many of these marriages might have taken place, how common mm. they were, if they took place at all, but presumably. Um, 
Yeah. There'd be something there, yeah. And about, I think the vast majority of those, uh, well, a, a high percentage of those marriages were kind of shotgun weddings after the girl had become pregnant. Well, yes, um, as was often the case. Um, sexuality, uh, the binary, we've got to remember, and I might have mentioned this before, that the binary wasn't heterosexual versus homosexual, it was marital versus non-marital yeah. when we come to sexuality. And so if there was uh, evidence that intimacy had taken place, as in a pregnancy, then for certain, even retroactively, the marriage um, should have taken place, yeah. Um, what about in, in early days, what about remarrying? What happened to widowers and widows? <clears throat> well, they frequently found new relationships, actually. Yeah. It was quite common because if we remember back in the day in the 19th century and for much of the 20th century, men and women were bound quite tightly together by economic relationships that extended outside of currency and into the running of a household, the domestic oh. economy. And so if a wife um, passed away... Um, prematurely, then a husband would need someone to take care of his household and raise his children while he continued to earn a wage. And likewise for a woman, hmm. she would wish to kind of, um, you know, establish a new secure situation for herself and potentially her children. So mixed families um, in the 19th century were not unheard of. They were quite common. Yeah. What about interfaith marriages? Controversial. Yeah. Usually, usually, um, Protestant Catholic marriages. <laughs> it's still controversial. Especially, well, absolutely. Um, perhaps not so much in New Zealand, but yeah. certainly, if um, you asked a, a Victorian New Zealander uh, what they thought of when the term mixed marriage was mentioned, they would usually think about a religious mix. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So you know, if someone from Dunedin moved up to Auckland, <coughs> well, Dunedin's got a very Presbyterian base. Oh, yes. Yeah, uh, well, further north, it's a little bit more Catholic. Mm -hmm. um, you could see um, some some trouble. Yeah, potentially. I mean, families um, did object quite strongly in many instances, especially in the 19th century, but also in the 20th, to interfaith yeah. marriages. And, you know, communities of faith, they have varying levels of orthodoxy. So yeah. some folks didn't wear their religious denomination on their sleeve very strongly and so would have perhaps been suspicious but more accepting, whereas others would have been an outright no. Actually, um, to mention, uh, if anybody has been to the history department and seen the door of Professor John Stenhouse, um, there is a matrimonial advertisement print on there um, yeah. from a 19th century newspaper um, a gentleman who's got some land and seeks to marry a woman between, I think it was 17 and 25, must be able to milk a cow or two, was one of the stipulations. And yeah. I remember another one was not a Catholic. Not a Catholic. So that was a very acceptable thing to say back in the day. Yeah. Um, revealing a bit of prejudice, but also um, a very acceptable requirement yeah. that you want to marry somebody of your own faith. And this writer was obviously a Protestant. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, yes. um, what about, you know, we just mentioned before uh, men coming out to mine the gold. So what about, you know, Sikhs and Hindus and, uh, and uh, Jewish people and the likes? Uh, we certainly had uh, good numbers of those folks coming in as well. And mm -hmm. we see plenty of built heritage around Dunedin to reflect that yes. today. Um, especially um, in major cities, a lot of these folks ended up... Um, and because of um, 
I suppose, how insular a lot of um, ethnic communities were, um, settlers especially, back in the day. Didn't necessarily like mingling with people of colour, with people of different religions and faiths. Um, Although Indians and Sikhs were actually brothers of empire, Mm-hmm. from another colony they you know uh, mingling wasn't really the norm so these folks often ended up forming quite tight-knit communities and supporting each other marrying amongst each other more so than marrying outside and that was the yeah. way it remained even among Māori and Pākehā for uh, until well into the 20th century um intermarriages were less common but as we've mentioned previously in areas like Bluff and other um, more mixed um, parts of the North and South Island, mm-hmm. intermarriage was more common, but statistically it declined. Yeah. 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 And so we're getting into like the 30s. We've just had the Depression. Mm-hmm. So with the Depression as a, as a urban migration, that becomes even bigger with uh, World War Two, the outbreak of war. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, musician, um, musician, <laughs> musician factories open up. Mm. You know, there's a war industry going on. Finally, there's jobs. So you're getting rural people of of, of all kinds, um, but especially rural Maori mm-hmm. um, moving into the cities. How, how does that change the face of marriage at the time? Well, in some subtle ways and some dramatic ways as well, I suppose. It was certainly a more visible presence of um, Māori women, especially in urban areas. Um, There was, of course, men who joined the Māori battalion who left rural areas as well, but they were frequently just shipped off overseas. So large populations of single Māori women um, who were perceived um, by observers and by social commentators um, in this kind of contradictory way as very vulnerable very vulnerable to the corruptions of the city ah. and, you know, needing protection, needing education so they were more savvy. But they were also perceived as a threat, you know, uh, poten- uh, particularly um, in a sexual way. Um, and that so boarding, ho- uh, boarding houses and hostels were established mm-hmm. for Māori women and these were actually terrific because they provided them with support and community. Um, a lot of good things happened in these hostels, but they were fundamentally... A nice form of social control, I suppose you could say. Oh, yeah, um, but interracial relationships, or at least couples, were more visible, yeah. if not marriages. Um, people started to mingle, and it caused a bit of consternation in the press. But ultimately, New Zealand was changing in a very dramatic way at this time, and interracial relationships between Māori and Pākehā were only one small part of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'd also had, um, of course, a second global conflict, and there was this apocalyptic tone to everything. It was supposed to be the war that ended all wars. So there were wider social issues as well that these kind of um, folded into, one of them being that 100,000 American soldiers all men, mostly at least, yeah. um, were stationed in New Zealand for approximately two years between 1942 uh, and 44, yeah. as the Second World War moved into the Pacific. And there were a lot of dancers and a lot of people met. Why, of course, uh, not only American troops, but New Zealanders as well had to be entertained and yeah. also treated to some hospitality. I mean, if we think about this, like these um, men were about to be shipped off to active combat, um, a lot of them wouldn't return, especially the Americans going to Guadalcanal. Yes, of course. So, um, you know, there was a real, and I've um, read manuals that were given to uh, 
hostile service workers, women, you know, who were encouraged to be friendly and to dance with servicemen, to ask them about where they were from, Mm -hmm. to offer them meals and to introduce them to others and make sure they had a nice time because of this bold sacrifice that they were making for their country. But in a chaste and sisterly way, always. Yeah. Marriages, relationships, broadly discouraged. But they did have it. They certainly did. Yeah. And so something like 3,000 servicemen married Kiwi women. Was it much in terms of um, Americans marrying Maori? They sure was, absolutely. Yeah. Um, one of my colleagues in the history department, Angela Wanhuller, is uh, doing a rather substantial project on war brides, New Zealanders. Yeah. Um, or, but certainly there were um, a good number of Māori women and a good number of Māori women seen dating or, uh, you know, socialising with American men, which caused tensions um, yeah. on multiple levels. Yeah. <laughs> Do we know if many New Zealanders went back to the States post-war? A good number of them did. Um, I understand some American servicemen remained here. Yeah. But a majority of uh, New Zealand war brides headed over to the States. Wow. So there's like, there's some half Kiwi kids over there that probably don't even know it. Absolutely. We'll know it, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. There were a lot of obstacles to this, um, especially from the American side. And there's a sense that a a few more Kiwi women may have gone over (laughs) if these obstacles weren't in place. The American boys are very popular. I wonder how many Kiwis got Dear Johns. Oh. <laughs> it's a question for another time. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's get to the 60s. It's the sexual revolution. Um, the women's lib movement is beginning. Um, you know, you've in, in America, you've got the civil rights movement, which is probably influencing some things over here as well. So things kind of loosen up in the marriage department. De facto relationships become more popular. Women start to keep their own names. They start to go to work. There's a lot going on. Yeah, and uh, all those stirrings were definitely beginning in the 60s and carrying through um, quite visibly to the 70s. The sexual revolution was an immediate uh, kind of tidal wave of promiscuity that washed over New Zealand. Um, but <laughs> it certainly... Oh, yeah, we wish. Um, it was certainly um, a kind of very broad and in some ways slow and other times rapid um, change which affected assumptions um, about how relationships should be in a broader way than sex but we certainly think about it um, in terms of sex coming away from its relationship with marriage being something that can be experimented with and understood outside of marriage Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah we were uh, certainly aware of the civil rights movement it did fuel a lot of uh, inspire a lot of uh, kind of similar movements um, in New Zealand especially among the young and among iwi. Uh, so a lot of uh, assumptions were definitely shifting. And we talked about that uh, earlier legacy of interracial relationships and marriages um, all the way, you know, pre-settlement. Um, and carrying right through, finally gained a degree of popular acceptance. And yeah. we had a lot of um, more diverse migrants come after the Second World War ended. So it was just kind of inevitable. Um, you know, Māori folk didn't go back to the country to live necessarily. Yeah. After shifting to the city, there was um, a wave that continued throughout the war and um, very much after. And there was a lot of concern with, initially, at least from the state's perspective, trying to integrate and assimilate these folk. 
intermarriage, uh, at least between Māori and Pākehā, was still a cause for concern among the powers that be because they were worried about how the children would integrate. Mm-hmm. And they were worried about social stability as a whole, which we can see um, as an after effect of the Second World War, wanting to reconstruct New Zealand and, you know, make it stable and prosperous. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there were still a lot of barriers for a while, but uh, they did start to melt away in a big way in the 60s and continue on from there. Yes, indeed, indeed. What about those that period between the 70s through the 80s and the 90s? Did anything... Was there any massive social change in terms of, of marriage? Well, yes. Um, in terms of, well, the 80s and the 90s, I suppose um, it was kind of a change by default in that um, homosexuality was legalised. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This did not in, uh, in immediately and directly affect marriage. Yeah. But certainly um, how wider assumptions about what uh, relationships were socially acceptable, what kind of uh, loves were permitted to... Um, be expressed yeah. and um, this would eventually filter into marriage in the 21st century as yep. we would be more familiar with we get in 2005 these civil unions mm-hmm. become legal and that was um, in a way a kind of a back door yeah. to uh, same-sex marriage it was diet marriage yeah yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> discount and, marriage yeah. and then april of 2013 the marriage amendment act allowed same-sex marriage uh, and we were still only one of a minority of nations, and we still are, mm-hmm. and we still are, um, that allow same-sex marriage. Uh, interestingly, though, um, throughout this journey, if you think about it, the fact that Ireland has legalised same-sex marriage, yeah. it's incredible. Uh-huh. Yeah, totally uh-huh. incredible. No, there are always bold moves coming from all directions, especially where yeah. relationships are concerned. It's a constantly evolving field, and, yeah, I'm sure we'll have more to say on the topic yeah. <laughs> where New Zealand's concerned. Yeah, exactly. Well, if anyone wants to get married and go through that, they can do it. <laughs> yeah, know. feel free. Yeah, feel free to get married. I mean, but now, you know, there's a. do you think now... Are we seeing in the last, you know, from a historic point of view, so let's just say, let's go back to 2013 till now. Is marriage, I mean, is it still a thing? Is it still a a, a major thing in New Zealand? What are the numbers? Brilliant question to ask. Actually, well, the numbers are fairly good. It's certainly um, not the most popular form of uh, relationship model that's available. We have far more de facto couples. um, And, you know, that seems to be the majority preference. But... In my opinion, I don't think marriage is quite dead. Yeah. I think there was definitely a big backlash against it as a kind of institutional norm. Yeah. And um, something that which seemed to be kind of exempt from being criticised or reformed in terms of sexual politics between men and women. We seem to be reaching a kind of equilibrium now, I think, and um, gay marriage is likely a big part of that. Yeah. Where we're able to kind of envision... Um, uh, kind of, you know, imagine a marriage in a broader frame of reference and make it work for whatever our expectations are of a relationship. Yeah. Outside of what a marriage should be or what we're told it should be. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're an innovative generation, an innovative bunch. We are indeed. Yeah, and not to mention, of course, that marriage is still incredibly important to religious communities, mm-hmm. to family mm-hmm. traditions, to um, sentimental attachments. Yeah. Um, so there are plenty of reasons uh, to get married. Not so many reasons to be scared of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, will I ever get married, Chanel? Probably not, sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, well, Brent, well, we'll leave it there. It's been an interesting journey through marriage and one that 
I hope that the listeners will have enjoyed and learned a little bit from. Uh, and as you said at the end, there's no reason to be scared of marriage. No. Um, you know, it's just a, it's just a contract that yeah. you're bound to for all the rest of your life. Plenty of room for expression around that contractual obligation. That's exactly right. Plenty of ways to wriggle out of it as well. Uh, well, maybe not so plentiful, yes. but there's certainly a few. Next up, we'll be looking at doing a 10-part series on divorce in Aotearoa. Oh, no. yeah. <laughs> Hey, thank you. Oh, you're very welcome, Jamie. It's been great. Until next time. Kia ora. That was a Radio 191 FM podcast. You can find more of them at r1.co.nz forward slash podcast.